Welcome to the Perfect First Layer Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we answer questions from you, the 3D printing community. I'm Guy from Guy Shop, and as with me always are my co-hosts, JJ Nathan. Hello. Hello. And we do depend on your questions for this podcast, so if you have one for our panel, please go to perfectfirstlayer.com, go to the submit page, and send it. We also have a Patreon, and we only have one level right now. We're simply asking for a small donation to help keep this podcast going. So please go to patreon.com slash perfectfirstlayer. What do you got going on in the lab, Nathan? Um, I just finished my Ender 3 V3 review, and it was pretty good. This is the, the thing I hate about when printers are good is I have to be like, yeah, I like the printer. It's really fun. And I, I don't like being positive. Chill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's actually really nice. It worked really well. My only complaint, I guess, is the I was dealing with a bit of under extrusion with their stock like configuration, the way they have it set up. Mm-hmm. So, But other than that, it was like very reliable and fast and worked right out of the box. So yeah, that's mostly what I've been working on. And I've been kind of retooling my... Uh, my channel. I want to change the way I do reviews a little bit. So yeah, cool. and I could I could go into a little more than that on that. Uh, but basically, I don't know. I'm I'm not really feeling the uh, the review format anymore. I just feel like it's not very exciting. Uh, and you know, you're either saying a product's crap, in which case you're just pissing off the company and probably never going to work with them again. Or you're saying it's awesome, and then you're you're like sounding like a shill. So I don't like either of those options. Personally. It sounds like a no-win situation. Well, it's a win situation if you just <laughs> for someone. Like, yeah, if you like that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm just not a salesman. I'm not a born salesman at all. <laughs> mm. I don't even like it when I I effectively sell things. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I want to get back to technology and engineering and get away so, from it. Mm-hmm. But, but you really liked it. Yeah, it was nice. Oh, okay. That's I'll cool. use it. Look, there's nothing wrong with saying that. You shouldn't feel guilty for saying nice things about stuff that works. Yeah, well, I get attacked for it all the time whenever I say there's a nice Creality machine out there. <laughs> I, I've, I've been around social media for a very, very long time, and I'm telling you, that, that's why I stepped away from some things. Just because it's so toxic, it's like I don't. I just don't want to hear it. You don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah, yeah. always someone angry out there who's going to comment negative things on your videos. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to block them all from now on. I, I used to have a no block policy, but now I'm just like, you know, screw it. Sometimes Get out of here. <laughs> just look at it and go, you know, screw this. Boom. Bye. Yeah. But uh, well, we don't. We don't want to have a discussion about all that on a 3d printing podcast, although yeah. I'd like to. So what do you got going on JJ? Yeah. So I'm also testing out the Ender three V three. No, uh, hold on a second. How come I didn't get one? I know. Yeah. You just gotta <laughs> contact them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mandra Ender three V three. I'm sorry, JJ, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty good. I feel like it's a, uh, open box, um, K1C, but vertical. Um, and so for most people, this would be an amazing printer to buy if you're fine really? with a bed slinger. <clears throat> I thought cool. it was going to be a total gimmick when they were like, Core yeah. XZ. Like, what were you talking about? That's Core XZ. What's, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. Like, what's yeah. the point? But, but it's really if, nice, the, like, the calibration 
is really quick, how it like homes and moves the head up and down super fast. And when a print finishes, you can just move the print head up and away from the print. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy to back drive it. Mm-hmm. Versus um, a screw, you can't move the bed around at all. Yeah. yeah, I think we should have we should chat about the uh, Ender three v three a little bit during this podcast at some point. Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, we uh, can do it right now. We we're we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. the one downside I did find was uh, you do need to do some cable management on the back, which is kind of a little tricky since there's pressure sensors. It uses the pressure sensors under the bed. Mm. There's a bunch of big cables, and one of them I didn't correctly zip tie in there, and so it touched the bed. So the whole thing thought it was leveling like two inches off the bed. <laughs> so the first print just started being a plate of spaghetti. Nice. Um, then I had to f- figure out how to fix that. Does does it use the same um, nozzle as the K1C? Yes. The big, long proprietary yeah. unicorn nozzle. Yeah. I don't know how everyone feels about a proprietary nozzle system. But well, you look, know. <laughs> the Prusak doesn't seem to bother them. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's the direction. Boys. That's the direction everyone's going, just because it like solves a really common point of failure, which is that leak that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, there's other things that I think I get more upset about when they're they're proprietary nozzles. It's not one of them. Mm-hmm. So I got to spend thirty dollars here for a good nozzle, or thirty dollars there for a good nozzle. Yeah. And I can't swap them between machines, which I never do anyways. Right. <laughs> and if it's a good hardened steel nozzle, it'll be a year or two of yeah. solid printing yeah. before you ever yeah. need to so, think about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. I'm, so I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Some people's printers get clogged like every other day. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> I have problems with my Ender 3 V2 when I first bought it, like a month after I bought it. You know, it worked fine for a month. Hmm. put about 40 hours on it and then things just don't work right anymore. And I got some clogs and I was just, okay, I need to do this and this and this. And it basically boiled down to, I wasn't, I didn't have the uh, filament hot enough. Oh yeah. Now, do you think people getting into the hobby nowadays are going to be inherently different in their ability and understanding of how 3d printers work? Because there used to be a skill test that you had to pass to be able to do anything. <laughs> Yeah, the, the basic troubleshooting that we all had to go through to get a Benchy printed. Yeah, yeah I, I I think that most people that buy a 3D printer, they look at it initially, they, people that buy them are kind of geeky like we are. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have some kind of level of expertise, hopefully with software or electronics. I think anyways. Um, yeah. So, unless you're giving it to a ten-year-old, then that's a different story. But they're could you give this. Stuff. Could you give this printer to uh, an under three V three to a ten-year-old? Say here you go. It Maybe. depends on the ten-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan yeah, at ten. Anchor Make M five, <laughs> whatever that last Anchor Make M five C or whatever. I gave it to my brother um, and his kids that are ten can use it because it's just an app on the phone where they can just like go through there, click it, send it, print it. Um, the whole app integration is what makes kids able to use it. Creality, I don't use their app, so I don't know how much kids yeah, can use it. I've never, I've never even downloaded it. So no. I, 
I've I tried it once and then I was like, I don't want this. So, so Nathan, do you send highly sensitive STL files through the cloud to your Creality printers? No, I just don't use the cloud <laughs> on any printers. I, I like all my jobs have, there's always like training that you had to do on how to manage files appropriately. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if you ever did anything with the cloud, that's not through like a secure email server or even sending things through a secured email server is not generally okay. Um, you have to have like a, a secure database that you're sending everything through just because like in real industrial applications, you know, companies spend hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars developing the CAD models and they don't want sure. it to be, you know, snatched by some other company. Yeah, I, I dig it. The way, the way I look at it though, is most of the stuff I print are like little parts for me around the house and other printers and kind of stuff. like. If they want to see what I'm printing. Okay. I yeah, I get care. that. I, I, I think it's fair. I, I would rather, I would rather worry about having to put it on a USB stick and walk at the super far distance of about 30, 40 feet to my garage. Right. I'd rather sit right here at my desk and hit a button and go and it prints. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just about, you know, your personal user experience. I don't think proprietariness really matters for most people, but I think that it's important for, you know, companies to allow or support that workflow and make it easy just because like, um, like Bamboo Lab, for instance, they encourage you to use the cloud and that's like the default setup. And uh, when they initially came out, there's actually a picture from the Navy Ordnance Research Lab. They posted a picture on Twitter like, we just got this X1C in and we're using it. This is so much fun. I really <laughs> hope that there's lots of other applications. I really hope to God that they're trolling because that is like a huge security red flag. You know, and they had someone in like a Navy uniform with the X1C playing around with it. And it's like, man, you're going to get court-martialed or something. (laughs) Well, I don't know anything about like military law and how that would work for something like that. Maybe they're using the USB drive on or the SD card to transfer files to it. You'd hope. Uh, Probably not. (laughs) So but, yeah, but I, think, I, I think that's a relevant question, though, and I, I understand what you're saying, Nathan. With it depends on the ten year old, but when you think about some of these printers that have come out lately, we, we've talked about before where they're trying to be more like an appliance. So if it's more like an appliance, it's something a ten year old could use, right? Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's say a, an eight year old. How many eight year olds have you guys been around? Yeah, I've got some nieces. Yeah. Could they do it? Uh, use the slide. Which printer? <laughs> Give them some guidance. I know that's a hell of a hypothetical. <laughs> I think most of these, the printer is set up with the filament already loaded, and they just have to like drag and drop into the slicer, click slice, click upload. Then, I mean, yeah. like a, an eight to ten year old could use a a two D printer, but if you just gave them a two D printer and told them to set it up, they'd be like, "Okay, which driver do I get?" <laughs> like, yeah. I dig it. I, I mean. I, I'm saying like being able to, uh, uh, let's say a 10 year old, being able to use a 3D printer if you showed him how to use it and walk away, mm-hmm. him or her, how to use it and walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are printers out there like that though. 
that are mm. close to that anyways. If things you, are precise, then I could see it. You don't think a 10 year old could figure out how to slice stuff? The um, profiles are so good nowadays. They don't need to like tweak settings. Yeah. They're the little kids are, are pretty darn savvy, man. Yeah. It would, it would surprise you to, to really know how much they know about that stuff. I think they could do it. Yeah. I think they could do it too. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys ready for a question? Let's do it. Yeah. Enough about the Ender 3 V3. <laughs> I know I sound like a shell right there, didn't I? It's the hardest thing to say, the Ender 3 V3 3D printer. <laughs> well, now, now it's just like, it's an abrupt stop. It's Ender 3 V3. Nothing yeah, else. you're expecting Everyone's waiting else. for something else. It's just, no, it's V3. It's just stop right there. So this is a pretty good question we got. It's from Austin. And he asks or says, .stl files are ubiquitous. That's hard to say, ubiquitous. But there are better are there better alternatives such as .3mf? What are the pros and cons of different file formats? Also, do you have any recommendations for export? Also, do you have any recommendations for export settings when exporting a 3D file from a CAD program? Thanks, Austin. I want to cover the second part of that question first, which is recommendations for exporting out of CAD in the yep. 3D software. And I think that could then dovetail into the different type of like step files and 3MF files. Yep. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> Nathan, why don't you start us off? <laughs> All right. So... Um, to send something to a slicer, usually you're going to do an STL or a step file. That's S-T-E-P. Um, it doesn't really matter which one you use. I think step files retain a bit more information. And it used to be that slicers were only compatible with STL, but now they support step generally. So um, I would, you know, tend to use step just because... Uh, I think the difference is step actually supports exporting the an arc like a circle as a single entity versus the uh, STL files they'll break it into a bunch of small lines or triangles. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know much about it but I think that is what it is. It's the the STLs are a, you know a ton of triangles and the step files are not. From what I know about 3MF files, it's kind of like a zip file, isn't it? Yeah, 3MF files, they have, um, I mean, uh, I'm not entirely sure what it is, but uh, it's yeah. it's like a zip file with a bunch of extra information thrown in there. So mm. whatever application can, like if you have two applications that both agree on what should be in that file, they can yeah. both just chuck files into it. And it's kind of like having cookies on your. Yeah, I, I guess I, I shouldn't say a, a zip file. It's more of a container file, like all different kinds of uh, container files, MKVs, 3MFs. You know, that's just I think, a, a, a container that holds a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, the zip file is an accurate description, though, because it's like it's an archive file, just like a zip file is. Um, and one of the Australians, I forget who. Um, my apologies. It's, it's either uh, Maker's Muse or Teaching Tech. I kind of get them mixed oh. up sometimes. 
they're, they're both on my screen upside down, so it's hard to tell them apart. Um, but uh, yeah, the, one of them did a, a detailed, I think it was Maker's Muse, did like a detailed explanation of what a 3MF file is. And yeah, it's got the STL or step file. And in addition to that, inside of that little folder, it's got, you know, additional like print settings and you yeah. can throw whatever you want in there. You could throw like a, a copy of the Lord of the Rings in there, or, you know, <laughs> uh, a password or something like it's just a folder, just like any other folder. Yeah, I've, I've tried to down. I, I actually avoid downloading .3MF files especially if I'm planning on printing with the bamboo printer, because it always messes up my um, AMS. Oh, really? You open up the 3MF file somebody posted on like Maker World for a bamboo printer and it changes all your filament. It's like, son of a mm-hmm. God. So yeah. you have to get the same. Because it's got, got their settings in the file. Yeah, yeah. That I don't like. Mm-hmm. The other distinction between a STL file and a step file is a step file is like um, is you can import that into a CAD program and start changing the parameters around and it'll recognize features pretty well versus an STL is just a tessellated model. So when you import it into a CAD program, it'll just be like this dumb object and there won't be like cylindrical faces or anything that you can manipulate. Unless you're working in Blender or uh, Mesh Mixer or something that's designed to work with those triangulated models, but traditional CAD programs like to import that STEP. So depending on what you're doing, like if you want to share that model and make it easy for people to remix it, then maybe you'd want to supply both. Um, but if you just wanted to provide the model and retain a little bit of IP protection, then you'd probably want to export it as an STL because it, it won't have as much information. So JJ, you use you use Blender quite a bit, obviously. So is it easy to manipulate STL files? And yes, yeah, that was the big reason I used Blender um, because trying to modify a file, like on printables, you download a file and you take it into Fusion three hundred and sixty. When you're like, oh, I just want to extrude this wall a little bit or modify it slightly, it was really difficult to do in Fusion three hundred and sixty. Versus in Blender, you just like select the wall, move it adjust your parameters anything you want is really easy to adjust could could you change a hole size in blender it wouldn't be the same you'd have to like grab all the points and scale them up Hmm. Um, so it wouldn't be the same as like changing parameter it's not a parametric 3d modeling thing yeah really grabbing those points in space and moving them around yeah the way i like to think of it it's more like working with clay Yes. In, yeah. when you're dealing with STLs versus when you have a, a step file or a parametric file, then you can change like thicknesses and stuff really easily. I mean, really basic stuff you can do, like if you just needed to scale it in a certain direction or like uh, add another part to it, you can do all that in Blender pretty yeah. easily. I've had, I've had a, a couple times where I've had to scab a couple parts onto STLs because I wanted a, you know, this component to be on there and i actually just did it in sketchup and it worked hmm. oh yeah that would work easy for that and i you know they and you can export on a sketchup into an stl so it was fine i was pretty surprised actually i've done it yeah. a couple times 
Can the uh, back to the file format? Uh, can step files actually be dropped into a slicer? Yeah, they can now. Okay. I think I think they used to not really support that, but uh, there was a Prusa slicer update, and they're like, "Yeah, step files, go for oh, it." <laughs> so yeah. I'm doing that. Yeah. And I just Bamboo looked up the other difference between Oracle also does it. Which one? Bamboo and Orca also do oh, those ones. Yeah. Maybe it's a Cura thing, but I think I've imported step files into they... Cure, into Creality Print. Okay, now they do support it. It was years ago they didn't. So that's what I'm remembering. Okay. Yeah, I remember that too. I was like, it has to be an STL, and then yeah. all of a sudden I was dealing with step files and everything was fine. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess they figured it out. Nice. So is bottom line for Austin, is it better to just use STL files in your guys' opinion? I think uh, step files retain more information, so they're better in a, a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, STL files are more than good enough for a lot of applications. And I think they're usually a little bit... I'm not sure if there's a difference in file size, actually. Um, STL would probably be smaller than a step. Well, contains a I lot think of they're they're bigger because all those triangles eat up a lot of populations. Uh, yeah, yeah. So like if you have just a cylinder, like a beer can, it just a really simple, like a can of peas or something, you know, <laughs> just a cylinder that's a certain height and a cer certain radius. You can describe that item in, uh, in a step file using only a couple lines yeah. versus in an STL, you have to describe every point, how they're connected and how all the faces that make that up. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a dumber representation that uses more, um, uses more space to represent things. Yeah. Cause some STL files, when it's like a simple round or a sphere in STL is like a ton of points and a bunch of tiny triangles just to make like, it's a sphere. It's super basic. Yeah. So many triangles, yeah. So Blender, I don't know much about Blender. It's it's primarily SDLs. I it? primarily use the I use the SDLs, uh, but it's open source and there's so many plugins you can add to uh -huh. it. So I bet there's. Um, can it be used like a traditional CAD program? <clears throat> there no, are really. plugins. Well, to I, I don't know. I, I, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've played around with some little functionality things to add. CAD-like transforms. I think there's one of the programs. is So it's getting closer. Uh, but still not traditional parametric modeling. Yeah. You were going to say like, something, Nathan? Well, yeah. So like with traditional parametric modeling, you usually start with a sketch to define things, mm -hmm. and then you extrude that or revolve it. Versus in... in uh, um, how do you start making a model in in uh, blender Usually, don't you start with like a square and then you start pulling it and pushing it yeah to... yeah yeah that's the <laughs> traditional way to do it that uh, sounds like you were saying before it sounds like you're working with clay yeah you start with a sphere or a, a what do you call it a primary object of a you start with a cylinder start with a sphere start with a cube and expand and contract and whatever you need yeah i know enough about it to know that i probably wouldn't like it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Until they get like a, a really good like VR implementation of it, I think that would be super fun to be yep. able to just like push and pull on things. Yeah. But you have to be able to push and pull on things with certain precision though, right? 
Not really. I mean, it depends on what you're working on. If you're making a bench yeah. or or like a sculpture, it doesn't matter if it's exactly 20 millimeters, 20.00. Well, I, like, I, I dig that. I dig that. But I mean, can you make like structural parts that you would use for something on it? Or yeah, is it I mean, just fun yeah. stuff? Well, can you can you make structural parts out of wood? <laughs> yeah, sure. With a, yeah. a, a chisel? I'm ta- I'm I'm talking strictly in the modeling sense. Yes, yeah, yeah. In the modeling, there is a each time you moving those faces, you're like, well, I want to extrude this face out 20 millimeters and then expand mm-hmm. out 40 millimeter. You know, um, yeah. So there, there are, are some. It's not just like grabbing stuff and pulling no, it's it. not like clay moving. Around. Okay, or you are grabbing a face and moving it a certain amount. You know. Yeah, you can type in, extrude it 10 millimeters out, or you can just grab it and pull it. I mean, there's lots of ways to work with the models. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that doesn't sound too awful. No, yeah. It sounds like it would be very confusing to me at first. And it's open source, so it actually uses your computer's hardware correctly. (laughs) I tried to use Fusion 360, and it just was crashing when I would throw too much at it. Mm. versus this one will actually be like oh yeah i see you have a good gpu let me just use that i'm i'm finding fusion 360 actually fairly buggy yeah it's like you close stuff out and your screen flashes different colors it's like (laughs) i just want to turn i just want to close this drawing i don't want the 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 whole software program to flicker on my screen for 30 seconds yeah it Um, does some weird stuff on mac like whenever i have it open the feature tree is always on top of anything that I'm working on. So like, (laughs) it'll be like front plane origin, whatever. And it's like, I'm just trying to watch some YouTube right now. (laughs) What's going on? Well, one of the problems I have when, when it does that is you have to, you have to shut it down then open it back up. But it's, it's like, why, you know, this is a very expensive program to buy a yearly prescription or a subscription for. Yeah. You would think it wouldn't do stupid stuff like that, but it does. That's frustrating. Well, the uh, the windows that you look at when you're working in Fusion 360, that's all based on Chrome. So it's like a browser-based uh, oh, software. Wow. Uh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to that. work there, so I know some secret yeah, tricks secret. on how to how to. Do you get, do you get, get Fusion 360 for free now because of that? Well, anyone can get Fusion 360 for well, free. Yeah, just right. using it for home and hobby use. Yeah, I could talk to them, but um, what's I, I still don't know what the limited version of Fusion 360 means. Yeah, well, it sounds like you aren't bumping up into the the ceiling yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, ready for the next one? Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah. You guys sound so excited. Ooh. All right. <clears throat> This question comes from Jamie, and he says, I enjoy listening to your show here in the UK. My workshop, 3D printing, started as much as a much-loved hobby as and now turned into a big part of my small business, 3D printing light fittings. Anyway, I have currently, I'm currently running a bunch of Ultimaker 2s and looking to upgrade. He goes into a little bit about talking about the different, you know, types of nozzles he has and he's he's talking about printing faster with a larger nozzle and larger line widths 
and larger walls. And both yeah. you guys have a lot of experience with that, right? Yeah. I know JJ does. Yeah. Oh, I love I love a big nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes everything so much faster. Yeah, I, and that's great for a business like that when you can just uh, calibrate. Calibrating in all the settings can be pretty. Or I've had some issues with uh, how move. The toughest part of using a large nozzle and large layer lines and stuff is uh getting the layer adhesion to work like the first layer because really? the bigger you make the layer the more curling force you have to the point where it's like it's almost like a, a you know a leaf spring pulling up the, the edges <laughs> always comes loose what do you mean curling force so what part of that one layer is cooling faster than the other part of the layer and it's pulling it up yeah jj have you experienced hmm. that not really um, in the first, in the first layer. Well, how how large are your first like uh, in terms of surface area? Like uh, how, yeah, how I, big? I'm on a small printer, so it's not very large surface area. Mostly vase mode prints, so it does a first layer or two, and then it starts putting material on top of those edges. So that's probably yeah. what's helping it hold down the edges. I think up to like a millimeter, it you don't have a whole lot of issues. But if you have like a a two millimeter layer thickness or five millimeter layer thickness, it starts like the first line, like you'll lay down one line. And by the time it gets to the end of it, it the tail of it's picking up. Oh like, yeah. Uh, I'm also using a G10 build plate and maybe some glue stick on there as well. So I haven't had that, but the stuff sticks really well to this print surface. Yeah. What, what about, what about thicker walls? Or is that all the, it's all the same thing? Um, well, generally I scale up the wall thickness with the layer height. So there's like kind of an aspect ratio that you don't want to stray too far. You don't want it to be too wide and flat and you don't want it to be too tall and skinny. So usually it's about a one to two, like, or, okay. or two to five. I've been doing pretty close to one to one ratio just because that's easy math. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I do want to do more diving into that, tweaking the ratios and stuff to see how that would affect things for sure. You're mostly printing pretty small stuff when you're doing all those big layer line things, JJ. Yeah. So far I've only done really small things. So, so yeah, the, uh, the issue is when you get to a larger print, you're, you know, yeah. your curling ends up being more of an issue. The, the bigger the print is. Oh yeah. Unless you find some way to like break up the stress somehow, which uh, I should figure that out because that, that seems so, like something useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have, have you guys, well, I, more specifically JJ, have you taken that big, was it a 2.4? Yeah. 2.4 millimeters. Have you, have you tried that in any other machines other than your small? No, Voron? I've only had it in the Voron for now. Um, okay. So I want to take it over to one of the bigger printers to get some giant vase. I think That'll that would it. be interesting. You'd go through a lot of filament. Kilogram of filament. It's cost $60 to print. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, about the light fixtures, though, uh, from, was it James's question? Jamie. Uh, Jamie's Jamie. question. Um, so the other thing that's kind of nice about using larger nozzles is if you just do a single layer, you end up with better optical clarity. So like, especially mm -hmm. for lights, you could 
have it, you know, you don't want it to look too dim and diffused just because the part isn't lighting up or letting the light through. So, yeah. you know, large layer lines make sense in that application. I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done that would look really cool. Yeah, I've seen a couple of videos. I really don't remember much about it where they, they talk about printing stuff that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. I've gotten it pretty clear. And then even uh, tweaking around with using a Sharpie uh, to color the filament as it enters. And it kind of gets this um, stained glass effect to it. I think you could do some really cool stained that, glass effects. Is that mostly pet G? Yes, that one is a pet G. For a while, I was using this old spool of PLA, uh, but it turns yellow so quickly. Um, so this new pet G is way more crisp clear so does will the uh the sharpie ink break down from uv light i don't know it's held up and still looks the same as when i printed it okay Um, but i don't know how much light i mean out this window doesn't get it's not sitting outside type thing Um, but so far it looks great but that'll be an interesting long-term experiment have you ever used that that clear patchy nathan uh, yeah, I like clear pet G, no additives, all natural, <laughs> all natural petroleum product. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing about pet G is it's relatively fire, not fireproof, but fire retardant. Mm. It's hard to light it on fire. <laughs> as I verified the other day. <laughs> Versus PLA, you catch it on fire and it's like going to burn like a candle. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I've never I've never seen it, so I can't say one word. I believe you. No, I, I don't think you should believe me. I think you need to get out there with your <laughs> welding torch or whatever you have. <laughs> I, I don't have a welding torch. I've got a a little uh, Burns-O-Matic, and that's about it. That'll get the job done. Yeah, it will. It will. That'll I'm do sure it. it will. So let's take a uh, question from Peter. Peter actually wrote a fairly long letter, but I'm going to read part two of his question. He he wants to build his own printer, okay? He wants an enclosed build, heated chamber, IDEX heads, and a build volume of 500 by 500. Uh, That is a BAP, big ass printer. I wanted the heated chamber to be able to print larger prints out of PC IDEX print heads so I can dissolve or use break, use dissolving or breakaway support material. Have you guys ever used that stuff? I haven't. And a large build volume is for making parts up to 18 inches. So and I, I, he's asking this question because I think it's relevant to what's going on out there right now. He says, I want to make this printer as safe as possible but it will require a lot of power. AC-powered heat beds are becoming more and more common, but every video I watch on the topic makes a point to talk about SSRs failing with the power on, even when talking about high-quality and over-spec SSRs or solid-state relays. It's talking about a thermal fuse will prevent a melted bed, but it's still potentially dangerous. Uh, I think we can all agree that an AC power. 
Should I trust that this can be done safely following directions posted online and maybe just have an electrician friend check my work? Is the reality that wiring moving in any parts will eventually fail and therefore I should pursue a custom 48 volt or 24 volt heat bed in the 800 plus watt range? JJ, I'm going to hit you with this first because you yeah. are the electrician in our electrician. <laughs> well, he's he's an electrical engineer. Engineer has some background. So that's he he knows more about electricity than I do. Let's put it that way. Yeah, um, I think I'm. I don't love AC beds when they're on a cheap clone of a printer, mm-hmm. <laughs> purely because of the build quality. And how good those parts are on there. I don't fully trust them to be assembled correctly. But if I was, say, building a Voron, I would feel comfortable putting a AC-powered bed on there. Because I know it's wired up correctly. I know I put proper strain relief on those wires. I would put a... The thermal fuse on there, I think, goes a long way in adding a lot of safety for if that SSR solid-state relay does fail and then the bed will just like do runaway heating, the thermal fuse will blow. And so then it'll just automatically cut off your bed. Do those really big printers like the Elegoo Neptune 4 Maxi Pro thing, Does that is that an AC heated bed? I think so. Yeah, I think that one's an AC yeah. heated bed. So with the Elegoo okay. Neptune series, the smaller ones are... Uh, are 24 volt and the bigger ones are AC and same with the Creality K1. The smaller ones are 24 volt and the Mm -hmm. K1 max is a AC heated bed. bed. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever worry? I've never worried about that. Yeah. I never worry about it on a, on a good printer. (laughs) Says the guy who puts his printer inside of a cardboard box. (laughs) Why not? So it's it's a heated chamber. Yeah, well, if the bed catches on fire, you're going to want to... You know, I I don't worry about my toaster catching on fire. Why should I worry about this catching on fire? It shouldn't catch on fire. Yeah, you'd hope. (laughs) You'd hope. (laughs) I hope my toaster never catches fire. You understand? That's where I'm coming from. Overnight and leaving it. Yeah. Do you ever start the toaster and then go to work for eight hours? (laughs) <laughs> no, because it doesn't take that long to make the toast. Yeah. Um, anyways, so I, I guess I said I just maybe on a bed slinger I would have a problem with an AC heated bed, mm-hmm. but like on the Voron, well the two point four anyways, the, the the bed is stationary; it doesn't move. Period. Yeah, but even um, even if it's but not like on the, but if even if you had something that had like a uh, a Z that went up and down mm-hmm. underneath on like the cube printers, the X quarks Y. I don't see that as a big deal because the bed's not flying around in the Y direction. Yeah. You've definitely got more issues with repeated stress um, mm-hmm. on a yeah. bed slinger, but like even on a stationary bed, you can have a runaway situation. Let's say it gets zapped with some static electricity and it blows something on the control board and it just locks the SSR on. Well, you're going to definitely want some kind of backup for that. Uh, and thermal fuses are relatively inexpensive. You can have something that just automatically cuts the power over 160 C, which is like hotter than you'd ever want it to get. Usually it's like 140 C. Yeah. 
Um, if you look at the uh, the Bamboo Lab printers, they'll all have, uh, well, at least the ones that I've looked at, have a thermal fuse. Um, a lot of the custom builds, larger printers, they'll have a spot to install a thermal fuse to like just cut things off. And it's a lot bigger deal in a 240 volt country because like, mm. uh, like particularly in, let's just talk about the Bamboo Lab printers. They have the same heated bed on 120 volt and 240 volt printers. And going back to Ohm's law and <laughs> power delivery and in a 240 volt circuit, you're going to be delivering four times as much power to that heated bed. So engineering wise, you have to specify a heater that will get hot enough on 110 volts or 115 or whatever. And in European countries or Asian countries where it's 240 volts, it's going to be four times hotter than necessary. So that could easily get glowing hot, like over the whole bed surface. Like it draws over a thousand watts. I'm pretty That's sure. Crazy. Yeah. That's a lot of power. It's the same plate they put on there. Wow. That's why you have to have some kind of backup safety mm. measure. Yeah. But right. both the software and the hardware backups of your your Clipper firmware should have it's it has its own runaway catchers and your thermal fuse will be your physical runaway right and none of those are a guarantee that it's going to be able to stop the issue Mm -hmm. because your thermal fuse can fail and like not open like maybe it's corroded or something and it's not gonna activate properly Mm -hmm. so there's always going to be a like whether it's a one in a million chance there's always a risk that something bad's going to happen which is why I think people should always keep an eye on their printers. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to leave them running unattended entirely, mm-hmm. even though for practical purposes, like oftentimes people will do that. Yeah. And you never hear about 3d printer fires anymore. Cause a lot of things have gotten so much better. Um, right. Even like cable management on these new printers, the bed slinger, the Ender three V three, how like well secured the cables are to the bed versus on my first Anycubic Mega S. Um, it took, yeah, they just solder the wires on there. It's just some cables sticking out of a hole in the metal chassis. And it took <laughs> until I was like, oh no, this is like worn through the PVC sheathing. That's funny. I was like, that was close to a fire right there. Just because they didn't care. <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing that you can't prevent, even with a thermal fuse on the bed, is if there's some kind of issue where the wire housing gets worn out, which, you know, that's exactly why we had the Bamboo Lab A1 recall. If that wiring gets worn out, there's no way, like, it's possible for it to short in a way that's not detectable by the software or the hardware. Because it'll be delivering power and being like, I don't, I, I don't know if anything's going wrong. And it's just like melting things. So that's the that's the deal with power electronics. They're sure they're scary. They have mm-hmm. risks involved. Like but they are fairly safe. <laughs> yeah. Like um, they, these are the one in a more than a million chances. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That like that's why I like dealing with five volts, twenty-four, even up to twenty-four volts, it's not too yeah, bad. Yeah. Because like when I'm messing around with an Arduino, even if I short two things together, the worst thing that's going to happen is the the, the processor is going to be like, ah, the voltage is too high. And it just like 
lets out a tiny little smoke and then yeah. it's all done. <laughs> or even it's up to 48. You can touch and you won't zap yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, 50 volts is the skin breakdown barrier. So that's where you'll actually shock yourself. I thought what it was the amperage that damages and not the voltage. Uh, it's the voltage that is what starts the current flowing. Current was what kills you, but you won't get a zap until it's somewhere around 50 volts on oh, dry right. skin. What if you're. I got, I got zapped by a telephone line once. Oof. I was surprised at how much voltage is going through those stupid things. I was like, how much voltage is going through those? It's like 90 plus volts. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I remember, um, I saw this product that you could plug into your phone jack and it was like a little light. Like it was just a little led light that you could get free power off of a phone grid. Do you guys even remember like <laughs> plug in telephones? Oh yeah. Dial up. Oh, I, I remember before there was even push oh, yeah. or, you know, Touch tone phones. That was a big rotary dial. Rotary. Yep. That went out right by the kitchen wall. All right. So it sounds like we talked <laughs> quite a bit about the voltage thing. What about the the breakaway dissolving support material? I've seen that stuff. I've never bought it. But then again, I design all my prints so they don't need supports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I've used soluble support material on a Stratasys machine. Mm-hmm. Um, usually you get that stuff when you have a part that you want prototyped or something, and it's not really designed for 3D printing. It's designed for yeah. some other manufacturing process. So there's no consideration made into being like, well, what, where are we going to print it? Like, what orientation is it going to be? They're just like, I want a hollow tube thing. Make it. And that's how you make it. Um, but yeah, it's generally very expensive to get that stuff working properly. I've I've looked at it and it's like, you know, for a a half a kilo, it's like 45 or $50, something like that. Yeah. It can easily, it could easily multiply the cost of your project by a factor of 10. Um, but you know, it depends on what your application is and if that's worth it to you. I've been having a lot of luck lately. If I if I'm printing something that I know is going to need supports, I print it in ABS, hmm. and the the ABS supports seem to break away easier for me. I don't know why. I'm probably just silly, but they seem to break away easier than the PLA ones. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into how easy or difficult it is to break away stuff. I think one of the big ones is how fast you can cool off the the filament so that it's not going to melt to the the previous layer. So uh like that interface needs to be almost like the the it's too cold to print. I don't know how to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Which would help with ABS that it's starting so hot it can cool down just enough to be more solid and so then that next layer you're printing on top um wouldn't adhere to it. Yeah, maybe. And then the other thing with uh, soluble support materials is there's certain applications where you can't remove support materials traditionally. Like think of a a ship in a bottle kind of situation. Yeah, that that comes up more often in certain applications. But I mean, most things don't need that uh, and you can design around it. But, you know, if you're doing a light fixture that you might want to have it be 
kind of like relatively sealed off from the environment. Um, I mean, yeah, it just all depends on the application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's talking it's about like light fixtures. I don't know exactly what he's referring to. Yeah. He's probably like printing. Yeah. Like somewhere where you're making money off of it. So spending an extra 50 bucks on some soluble support material would be totally worth it. Right. And then there's the processing costs. You have to got you got to buy a big Rubbermaid container and fill it with solvent and heat it up and stir it and, to get it. You melted. have to put solvent in there and heat it up. Doesn't solvent solvent just water? Uh, well, that's the universal solvent. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you the like the the professional machines that Stratasys uses, they provide like a, a some kind of solvent mixture. And then I called it like a, a parts bathtub that you just put it in there and it heats the water and stirs it around. What's the, what's this, what's the material made out of that's requiring a, a chemical solvent? That's PVA. I mean, PVA will dissolve in water as well, but yeah. um, it dissolves mm-hmm. better. Like if think about like the ship in the bottle example, um, you have to be circulating the water in and out of there and you want it to dissolve as fast as possible. Yeah. Because the difference between taking a week to eventually dissolve all that out and taking a day is like a big deal to a lot of customers. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think that is going to do it. And uh, thanks, guys. And remember, we really need questions and participation from you, the listener. So make sure to go to perfectfirstlayer.com, go to the submit page, and ask us. Nathan, why don't you tell everyone where you can be found? Look me up on YouTube. It's Nathan Builds Robots. All right. JJ? And I'm on YouTube at JJ Shankles. All right. If somebody wants to send us questions, where can they email them to, JJ? Yeah, you can email us at perfectfirstlayer at gmail.com. Nice. And I can be found on YouTube also at Guy's Shop and uh, just about everywhere else is Guy's Woodshop. So, all right, guys, it was a pretty interesting conversation, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right, Bye. see you.